Our scripture reading this morning is Esther chapter 4, verses 4 through 14. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 412. When Esther's young women and her eunuch came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how we need to hear from you today, how we need to see Jesus today, how we need to be touched by you, by the power of your spirit today. Words would fail if we attempted to catalog how needy we are, but it comes down to this. Will you, our Father, visit us in power today? Will you bless us? Will you show us Christ? Will you minister your word to our hearts? Will you build Christ's church in our midst today? Will you add to it today? Will you strengthen it today? Will you make us, remake us, into the image of Christ today. And use your word to do it by the power of your spirit. Failing that, Father, no good thing comes out of this hour. But that's the good thing for which we plead with you. It's the thing we believe you're committed to. So we ask on that basis. Thank you for these things, our Father. Be merciful to us in this hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Count of Monte Cristo is the story of a man sent to a filthy prison on false charges. So he lives in prison squalor, and he lives in a place that nobody leaves alive. 
And while he's there in prison, he meets an old priest in an adjoining cell who has begun to dig a tunnel to escape. And the old man is very well educated, and so he starts to tutor the hero of the story, Edmund. And so over their years in prison, the priest helps Edmund to figure out who betrayed him, and he teaches him languages and art and culture and tells him the location of all things of a hidden treasure of vast wealth. And then when the old priest dies, Dantes, Edmund Dantes, makes a desperate move to get out of jail. He secretly trades places with the priest's body in the body bag that they're going to throw into the ocean. So this desperate move results in his escape, and then he retrieves the treasure, and then he spends years furthering his education and building his fortune, and finally he emerges into society as the Count of Monte Cristo. And uh, he uses his wealth at first to get even with people, but then he becomes a better person, and he settles into a new life. And the concluding words of the novel by uh, Alexander Dumas uh, tells us that the lesson that he learned was to wait and hope. Now, it is an exciting story. That's why I brought it up. It has made for some great movies, at least 16 that I can find. Um, <laughs> my favorite's the 1961 version. It was a good one in 75. It's, it's, it's by no means an instruction in Christian morality. Because the hope for which the count learns to wait is not, not the Christian hope. But I think... What I have found so appealing about that story is the drama and, frankly, the poetic justice of an enormous and seemingly impossible reversal of fortunes. You get a man redeemed from utter despair, and it turns out for him, it results for him in a life of wealth and happiness. That story has been on my mind as I've been wrestling to understand the biblical story of Esther. Part of the problem of wrestling with Esther is you first read it and you think it doesn't need to be wrestled with. It's easy to understand. And so you've got to get past that. I'm convinced that the story of Esther is a story of hope realized through the dramatic reversal of fortunes. So in Esther, people in despair condemned to death, are rescued, and they're given a new life of prosperity and a life of celebration. Of course, the rescue through the reversal of fortunes that occurs in Esther is a salvation story for the people who hold God's covenant promise of salvation. It's a story of a rescue, therefore, that is engineered by a sovereign God who with an invisible hand keeps his promise even when his people are in the despair of exile and under the threat of death. So Esther holds out hope for people in that kind of despair. I'm wondering if you are subject to that kind of circumstantial despair. Do you find yourself in other words, looking at life as you experience it and thinking that all is lost. God's blessings are not for me. 
I believe Esther's message can help you, if that's you, to get the right perspective so that you know that God is at work and more than that, that you know what he's doing and you know how he's doing it and you know what your part is to play in it. If you're someone here today who haven't yet, has not yet come to be part of what God is doing, I really want to invite you into this story with me because I think it can show you how you can come to be a part of it, how you can come to share in it. Because we're going to learn about how when things look ridiculous, God turns everything upside down with the result that his promise stands. Now, we're starting a series in Esther this morning, seven parts in all, an overview now, five narrative pieces, and then a wrap-up. And the, the, the title of our series, as your bulletin says, is Esther, the Promise Stands. And the theme of the series and of this message is that God sovereignly reverses human fortunes to cause his covenant promise in Christ to stand. And I would add there's an implication that's not to be missed if that's the message. Therefore, his believing people may confidently risk lives and fortunes to see his promised covenant blessings come to pass. So I commend to you the outline that's in the bulletin. It will help you. First, we want to see how to understand Esther. And on the back of today's message is this outline and some information about the entire book of Esther. This book is written sometime between 450 B.C. and 300 B.C. That's, that's a big stretch of time, and we're not sure exactly when it was written because we also don't know who the author is for sure. And the genre of this literature, the kind of writing that it is, is a historical narrative, but it has wisdom literature elements in it. It's got wordplay in it. It's got irony in it. It's got satire and hyperbole or exaggeration. You know, I, I compared it to the drama of the Count of Monte Cristo, but, you, you know, Esther is half drama and, and really half comedy. A lot of satire and wit in Esther, and sometimes you're not sure whether you're supposed to laugh or not. So there'll be some times when I'm going to say, it's okay to laugh at that. <laughs> now, the political setting, we do know about the political setting. A king named Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus, we know that he reigned from 486 to 465 B.C. So these events are taking place during his reign. So this is after the time when the temple has begun to be restored under Zerubbabel. The exiled Jews have begun to come back into the promised land. And it's before the time when additional exiles are going to come back later under another king named Artaxerxes. There is a covenantal setting to all this that mustn't be ignored. Israel has been exiled and dispersed throughout what is now known as the Medo-Persian Empire. It used to be Babylon. Babylon got conquered by the Medes and the Persians. The curses of Deuteronomy chapter 28 have been imposed on the nation of Israel for covenant failure. But the promise, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, that God's promise to Abraham is still in effect. That covenant failure hasn't brought about the failure of God's promise. And during this time, 
these scattered Israelites are the, for the first time beginning to be called Jews, exiles from Judah. This story is written, this book is revealed to cause Israel to perpetually remember and not to doubt God's deliverance in order to maintain faith in his covenant promise, his promise to finally bless them. So as I've said, the theme is, therefore, God causes his covenant promise of salvation in Christ, as we now understand it, to stand through his sovereign reversal of fortunes. Now, <clears throat> that being said, if you look at the bottom half of that piece, uh, that back of the sermon outline, uh, you can sort of see the flow of the story. Um, and just before we look at the flow of the story, let me say one thing about how to read Esther and how not to read it. We have to deal with this kind of literature. See, we're tempted to take this Old Testament story, frankly, we're tempted to take all the Old Testament stories and reduce them to moral examples. You read Daniel and you, you need to dare to be a Daniel. Be like Daniel. Uh, you know, be available like Esther was available. Be righteous like Mordecai. Be a man after God's own heart like King David. But of course, <laughs> we never know what to do with our moral examples when they appear to us to be immoral. <laughs> you know, be like David, well, like, except when you shouldn't be like <laughs> David. It's not a very helpful paradigm, really. So we mustn't turn Old Testament narratives into Aesop's fables, where you just distill the moral of the story and try to apply it to yourself. And the problem with Aesop's fables, if you've ever pondered it at all, is that you could supply different morals for those stories. Other morals are possible. And I want to say to you that when the Bible wants to give you a moral example, it will do so pretty plainly. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Don't be like that guy. Um, don't be such a fool. Esther's author is not going to be concerned with whether, for example, King Ahasuerus was a good husband or a bad husband, or whether Queen Vashti was a brave feminist warrior or a proud and wicked rebel. The book is not going to comment or demand conclusions about whether Esther was a bad girl for keeping her Jewish identity a secret, and not only going into the king's harem, but using her beauty and her gifts to rise above all the other beautiful girls. By whatever means, we don't know. So what's a nice Jewish girl doing in a place like that, one commentator asked. <laughs> Esther's author's not going to ask or answer that question. There is going to come a place in the story where you can conclude that you ought to be like Esther, but it'll be based upon what's obvious about the unfolding covenantal story. It, it won't be because Esther or because Mordecai is an obvious moral exemplar to be imitated in every way. So when you see how God keeps his salvation promises through the actions of people like Esther and Mordecai in their context, you'll be able to begin to see how you can align yourself with God's promises that he's keeping as well. Now, as I said, look at this, and let's just overview the story. Basically, you've got a, a story where a girl named Esther rises to power through events that are obviously engineered by God, though his name is not in the book. This obscure Jewish girl becomes the queen 
of the Medo-Persian Empire. It's stunning. And that's what happens, but there's a reason for it. Because a villain is going to arise. And God's covenant people everywhere are going to be threatened in the story. This guy named Haman concocts a plot against the Jews, especially against Mordecai, who is Esther's sort of adoptive father. So what happens is that Esther has to risk death in order to intercede for her people because Haman's plot has resulted in a decree that all the Jews everywhere be annihilated. And she's going to have to go before the king at the risk of death and ask him to overturn that somehow and to spare all of her people. And as we get into it, you'll see that it's a complicated question and a complicated solution. But what happens is that Good old cousin Mordecai, in the process, not only is not murdered by Haman, who specifically hates him and wants to kill him, but he also rises in honor and power and takes Haman's place as a powerful figure. So now Mordecai rises to power in the Medo-Persian Empire. The wicked Haman is thrown down and gets his just deserts in a kind of poetic justice. And then the Jews are amazingly delivered and given a feast to commemorate their deliverance in perpetuity, to celebrate that God has spared them. That's where this story goes. It sums up nicely. You could make one point and move on, but we're going to take some time to look at the parts a little more. This morning, however, I'd just like to help us learn how to focus in on Esther's teaching. If you look on the sermon outline, we're in Roman numeral two, learning Esther's uh, teaching. There are some threads that keep weaving through the story, things that keep popping up. They help us track with the meaning. And here are some big ones. The first one I've called the continuity of covenantal purpose. The story of Haman versus Mordecai is an echo of the story of Israel, the nation, versus Amalek, the people. Look at, turn to chapter 2 and look at verse 5 in Esther. Page 410 is where Esther begins in your pew Bible, if you weren't there already from the reading. Chapter 2 says, There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Okay. You just stop right there in the middle of the sentence. Mordecai is of the tribe of Benjamin, and that's meaningful. You, you dr- turn over to chapter 3, look at verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Haman is descended from somebody named Agag. Agog, if you wanted to try to say it, I guess. It's an echo of 1 Samuel 15. King Saul in 1 Samuel is of the tribe of Benjamin, and he was commanded by God to go and destroy the Amalekites, whose king was named Agag. Destroy all their animal, animals, all their possessions. Everything's devoted to the holy war, the holy destruction. But instead, Saul decided to capture the king of the Amalekites, Agag, 
and make him a prisoner, and also to take the choicest of the spoils, purportedly, as Saul tried to put it, to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Oh, we're going to keep the best stuff and we'll give it to the Lord. Okay. God wanted you to give it to him by destroying it all, but okay. God rejected Saul over this disobedience. The prophet Samuel confronted Saul and told him, hey, listen, to obey is better than sacrifice. You know that story. And then Samuel takes a sword and cuts Agag to pieces. Now we've got, fast forward, Israel in exile. You've got a descendant of Agag squaring off against a descendant of Benjamin. The struggle for Israel to obey God the God who makes covenant promises continues. We're in that same story. Haman is going to try to utterly destroy Mordecai and all of his people. But God will use Mordecai to utterly destroy Haman and all of his people. It will be very explicit when all ten of Haman's sons are killed. And Haman's property will all be devoted to the Lord. This theme is reiterated when the Jews act on the edict written that permits them to defend themselves against annihilation as the story unfolds. Three times the text is going to say they laid no hands on the plunder. Chapter 9 verse 10, verse 15, verse 16. They did not keep for themselves that which was symbolically devoted to the Lord. And And that echoes another theme from the Old Testament, another covenantal theme as well, another salvation theme. Not only are we perpetuating this conflict between Israel and Amalek and trying to get it right this time, but in the Bible there is a place, as you know, you've read it, for plundering the enemy. You know, Israel plundered the Egyptians, but not by violence. They plundered the Egyptians as they came out of Egypt by having won their fear and their favor. And so the neighbors essentially said, please take this gold and get out of town. Leave us. Go away. But in Esther, this refusal to take the plunder follows a different trajectory, has a different meaning. Genesis 14 is the story of Abram, who becomes Abraham. And he went out in military force because he had to rescue his kinsman named Lot Lot and his family had been captured in a a war when five kings went out to fight against four kings. And the four kings won, and Abram, uh, Lot Lot was captured. And Abram got an army together and went to save Lot and save his people. And he rescued them, and he brought them back and also captured a bunch of other people that had been taken prisoner by these kings and a lot of spoils of war that had belonged to a fellow who was the king of Sodom at the time. He's one of the kings that lost in that battle. So when this defeated king of Sodom comes out to greet Abram, he says to Abram, he says, you know what, give me my people back, but you can keep all that stuff for yourself as a reward. Thanks a lot for doing that. And Abram said, now I quote Genesis 14, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Now that's that's a covenantal tradition. I'm going to be blessed. It's going to be God who blesses me. It's not going to be you. It's not going to be because human things fell into place for me. Other people did stuff that I got rich off of. No, God's going to bless 
God's going to bless me. The Jews in Mordecai's day would have it be known that the Lord delivered them, and they didn't become rich through greed or at the hands of men. The Lord was the one blessing them. So that's a thread to be followed. Another one is that this feast that they're given, if you, if you were to read over the final chapters, you'd see that the Feast of Purim is, is commanded for them. The book of Esther really is written in part to explain the Feast of Purim to the Jews going forward. The feast falls in proximity to the coming feast of the Passover. We'll talk more about the Feast of Purim a little bit later, but it's essentially a commemoration of the fact that God delivered them. But its proximity to Passover is significant. The Passover commemorates God rescuing the nation out of Egypt, sparing them from destruction. But the meaning of the Passover would be called into question if the Jews were now all destroyed through Haman. What did God save them for? Did he really save them? Now they're all gone. That's not going to work. This deliverance and the feast that commemorates it, it protects the meaning of the Passover. God is still delivering us. We are still his people. We still exist as the covenantal people of God. And frankly, there's another subtlety here. I wouldn't expect you to pick it up, but you can, you can sniff around for it as you make our way through these messages. Purim, the name of that feast, is a word that comes from the term for the lot, the idea of casting lots. And that was, as you know, a means of discerning the Lord's will and knowing what to do next in Old Covenant times. Haman, who's not one of the Lord's people, is going to cast lots to know when is a good time to destroy all the Jews. And the Proverbs teach us that, of course, God's behind those things. The lot, Proverbs says, is cast into the lap, but it's every throw is from the Lord. God is the one who determines these things. The Lord is the one who determines when it's time for him to reverse fortunes. And it's going to turn out that the lot that Haman cast fell favorably to the Jews and not to Haman. So there's a feast of remembrance, a feast of Purim, where we remember the lot that was cast that came out good for us and bad for him. And, you know, the the talk of lots in the Bible, there's a subtlety to it. It's the idea of allotment. God uses the lot to distribute his gifts of inheritance to his people. He allots or apportions their inheritance, which means he decides what they get and when they get it. Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6 talk about this. Purim in Esther reinforces that the Lord still determines the destiny of his people, never mind how things look. So, another thread here that we want to take note of besides uh, the continuity of covenantal purpose are these types of deliverers. We see Esther as a deliverer. She is, as we like to say, a type of Christ. Her life points us forward to the great deliverer. So what do we see there? Uh, we, We get the story of Esther, who's an orphan. She's being raised by an older cousin. Mordecai is the nephew of her uncle, which makes him her cousin, but he's obviously older than her, so when her parents died, Mordecai adopted her, and he raised her. So she's an Israelite in exile, without parents, without her natural parents. She's got an adopted 
family. But God causes her to rise to great power. God engineers her path so that she becomes the queen of the Medo-Persian Empire. Still, her greatness in this story is not just the crown. She becomes a deliverer of Israel at the risk of her own life. Turn over to chapter 4 where we read part of it and we're going to read a little more. Pick it up in verse 12. This will be a repetition for a couple verses and then we'll read some more. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do then. I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So God put Esther there for such a time as this, which means he put her in that context to accomplish his purpose in that moment. And what does she do to accomplish God's purpose? She enters into a death fast. No food or drink for three days and three nights. Every time something happens in three days or three nights, you should be suspicious that it pertains to Christ. And she purposes to do what? To intercede for her people at the cost of her own life. If I die, I die. But it it will turn out to be God's reversal of fortunes that saves her people. But it's through her sacrificial intercession. Chapter 7, the first six verses articulate how the people have been sold under annihilation. They are to be annihilated, but her intercession saves Israel. And all of that pictures redemption in Christ, who sacrifices himself to save his people. Think of it again only through the life of Mordecai. He also is a deliverer. He too is a type of Christ. Back in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, we read part of it. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now that name probably rings a little bit of a bell, but you're probably not sure who. But Jeconiah, Jeremiah 22, records how this guy, king of Judah, was carried away, really, and cursed by God that he would never see an heir of his on the throne. Mordecai is associated with that apparently kingdom-ending curse which we know from Matthew's gospel turns out didn't really end the kingdom because Jeconiah shows up again in Christ's genealogy through a reversal that God engineers. Jeconiah is going to be part of Messiah coming and establishing the kingdom of God. But here's Mordecai 
cast into exile under curse. And what's more, here's Mordecai sentenced to death. If you were to skim through chapter 3, verses 13, 14, and 15, he's under the same condemnation that all the Jews are. Haman works his plot. He gets King Ahasuerus to sign into law an edict that annihilates all the Jews everywhere in the Medo-Persian Empire. You know, I didn't, I didn't go into detail because we don't have time to go into everything, but we're talking about a kingdom that stretches from the shores of Greece, with whom they were at war. It covers Afghanistan and Turkey, it, 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 uh, Iraq, Iran. Uh, it's a vast, vast kingdom bumping into the top part of what's now Saudi Arabia. Very big kingdom and one of only two superpowers in the world at the time, Greece being the other one, to whom they eventually fall. But um, fabulously wealthy, fabulously powerful. And in this great kingdom, which stresses, stretches from <laughs> one shore to another, all the Jews are going to be annihilated on a single day. But chapter 5, if you turn there, and look at verse 13 and 14. It singles out Mordecai. Because Mordecai, we've learned, uh, doesn't like to bow down. Doesn't like to bow down to Haman. So Haman ends up, I think I've got the wrong reference there. But it doesn't matter. I'll just tell you the story. <laughs> Haman gets mad that this guy's not bowing down. And his friends... Tell him, well, you should go to the king and get his people destroyed. And what's more, uh, his wife tells him at a crucial juncture, if you're still mad at this guy, build a gallows in the backyard and just kill him. And he's like, that's a great idea. I'm going to sleep well tonight. So he, he's, Haman's been condemned to death. But you get to chapter 6, and we start to see him rise to prominence as God reverses fortunes and caused Mordecai to be honored because they come to the king to say, uh, the king, they, they remind the king that Mordecai had saved him from a plot. One day the king mysteriously can't sleep and he says, uh, he starts reading and says, what we ever do for this guy? Well, we never did anything for him. He goes to Haman, his trusted advisor, and says, what do you do for the man whom the king wants to honor? And Haman thinks, that's got to be me. Uh, so I think you dress him up in the king's clothes and put him on the king's horse and parade him throughout the kingdom and say, thus it shall be done to the man the king desires to honor. And he says, good, go do that for Mordecai. Oh, no, no. I've got guys building a gallows in my backyard right now. This is not going well. So you fast forward, turn over to chapter 8. You get the capstone of it. Uh, Mordecai gets gets killed. Um, uh, I mean, uh, Haman gets killed. Mordecai gets honored and pick it up. Uh, I'm, I'm looking. <laughs> I turned in my little Bible to a different book for another reason. And I got to turn back with you. On the day the king Hazuerus gave to Queen Esther the throne of Haman, the enemy on that day, the gave to Queen Esther the throne of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what, 
what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Complete reversal. The most, second most powerful man in the kingdom is now Mordecai, not Haman. Haman's dead. He's got the signet ring. Let's him take action and deliver God's people. He triumphs over the enemy that tries to kill him. He rises from his humble estate to victory. He rises to the seat of power, to a great inheritance. And all that is meant to be a picture of our redemption in Christ. These are the things that happened to Jesus as well. I point out to you as well, Haman, the enemy, is a type of Satan versus Christ. The proud hater of God's people. He's plotting their demise. Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 uh, you, you, we've already talked about it. Haman sees that Mordecai doesn't bow down, and he, he's furious, and so he decides he'll get the king to pass, this, to pass this edict that kills all the Jews. So he's proud. He's filled with rage because he doesn't get the honor that he thinks he deserves. He's not satisfied to destroy the one who's not giving him honor as he sees it, but he has to kill all of his people. And what is his demise? The killer is crushed by Divine reversal. We've already talked about it. Poetic retribution. Haman is hanged on the very gallows he had constructed to kill Mordecai. So Esther as a deliverer. Mordecai as a deliverer. Haman as the enemy. All these elements combine to paint a very elegant picture of Jesus Christ. God's salvation through Christ. All of it premised upon the divine reversal of fortunes. I hope you can see Christ in all of this. Jesus Christ left heaven to come to us in the lowliest of conditions. He became flesh. He became the man of sorrows. He left his father's house like an orphan in exile. He was raised by Mary and Joseph. He entered into our exile on account of our sin, of our covenant breaking. So Jesus drew the scorn and the rage of Satan. Satan lusted after the glory of God for himself. Satan, that proud destroyer, that liar, that murderer, he conspired against the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God had sent for the salvation of his promised people, his people of promise. Satan attacked Jesus in his birth. He attacked him in the wilderness. He opposed him in all of his redemptive deeds through the hands of wicked men and the agency of demons, all of which are Satan's minions in those attacks. And through false witness and manipulation, Jesus was condemned to die. We see, unknown to the enemy, Jesus Christ had come into the world for such a time as this. His arrival in lowliness was the predetermined purpose and plan of God. He was here to stand forth in identification with his people, the people of God. He came to risk his life to intercede for the people of God. Christ's mindset was, if I perish, I perish. And indeed, as it turned out, he must perish. He had to die in order to rescue his own. Jesus must die on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. 
Because while Christ had charges levied against him that were not just, the charges against his people were just, weren't they? The charges against us are just charges. Our exile from the presence of God over our law-breaking is a just penalty. So how could Christ rescue us from a just exile of death? He can do it by entering into our place and taking our exile onto himself. Jesus died on the cross in exile from God to rescue sinners who deserve to be exiled from God. His death makes the way for him to bring the exiles back. And it's all a huge, God-driven reversal of fortunes. The one who should have been honored and glorified became sin for us and was cursed for us. So that we who should have been cursed and killed could be blessed and made to live. He died so that we might rise. That's a reversal of fortunes. And in the most ironic twist of all, in his death, he triumphed over death. Satan intended to crush Jesus on the cross. But as the Father had promised, while Satan bruised him on the heel, Jesus crushed his enemy's head. Like Haman hanged on Mordecai's gallows, Jesus' death on the cross became the demise of Satan and the death of death itself for us. The enemy is crushed. The Savior inherits the world. The people of God are spared and they share in their champion's victory with great celebration. All of this, all of this is the divine outworking. And it's, a, it's the divine outworking of something else, even slightly more pointed, <coughs> that's illustrated for us in Esther. I've called it the dilemma of irrevocable law. We learn from Esther, chapter 8, verses 6 to 8, that the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be revoked. When it is written, it is written. Not even the king can just take it back. It has to stand. So what is a king to do when the law he has caused to stand without the possibility of its abolition, that law calls for the destruction of one whom the king holds dear. Shall he forsake his love and turn aside from his irrevocable law? Or shall he maintain his irrevocable law and forsake the one he loves? Esther shows us how the king addressed this lawful dilemma. He caused another law to be put into effect as well. A law that provided a way of escape 
for the objects of the king's love. A lawful annihilation is overturned by a lawful rescue. So it is with Christ. God Almighty has decreed the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die, Ezekiel reminds us. And this law is without remorse and without revocation. No one skirts that. But God in his mercy has also said to us, as Ezekiel reveals, if a wicked person turns away from all his sins, he shall surely live. Turning from sins means turning to Christ. It doesn't mean anything else. God has decreed that the wicked may flee to Christ who will give them his righteousness as a gift and free them from the lawful destruction for sinners. Psalm 85 reminds us that righteousness and peace have kissed in God's deliverance. Righteousness which said you must die because you're not righteous. And peace which says I want you for my own to live in peace with you. The gospel has been put into effect as the remedy for the irrevocable law of death for sin. Christ's death on the cross and his gift of life, his gift of repentance, of cleansing and power. It answers the law of sin and death. This edict of life is held out for all who believe. I want to hold it out for some of you today if you're here in unbelief. You might not see it, but if you're outside of Christ today, you're under the edict of annihilation. It's God's irrevocable law. You've sinned, and you've earned for yourself death. The death you've earned is not just the end of the life that you know about. It's, an unconscious, it's not an unconscious annihilation. It's an eternal separation from God. It it comes complete with agony, self-recrimination, shame, scorn, an existence of never-ending bitterness. See, the the Jews had to endure a living exile on account of their covenant-breaking. But they entered into it with a promise of deliverance and a hope of restoration still in effect. The death that you face, my unbelieving friend, has no such promise and no such hope attached to it. It's only pain all the time. And I want to say to you this morning, if you're outside of Christ, you haven't died yet. You haven't entered into that irrevocable judgment yet. There's still time today. God offers to you today forgiveness of sins, freedom from bondage, power for repentance, a new heart, a new mind. All that can be yours by faith alone. Only by faith Can you be born again only by faith plus nothing else? The faith that connects you to Jesus Christ, it'll be a repentant faith. It'll look like turning away from self in favor of turning to Christ. It'll look like giving control of your life to him, renouncing any confidence in your own deeds. And so I'm asking you, will you be delivered from the decree of death that currently stands? Will you receive rescue At the hands of the deliverer, I call on you to put your trust in Christ. Today, you can enter into a celebration of life and rejoice over Christ's rescue of your soul. I say to you, in the words of the scriptures, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved.
how shall we apply Esther's teaching quickly? First, I would call on you to view all of life's traumas through the proper redemptive lens. Esther and Mordecai looked at the hard life they lived through the lens of God's redemptive promise. So should you. So I would say stop reacting to life's griefs and horrors as though they were mysteries to be solved or deciphered or, or somehow contradictions to God's favor and power in Christ. Life throws all kinds of unsettling events our way. It, it does so at a societal level. We get injustices and violence and tragedies. In none of those things is there a message that tells you God is no longer at work. His message is salvation through Christ. It's still in play when those things are happening. Just as God's covenantal promise to Israel was still in effect even in exile. We understand God's promise now to be redemption in Jesus Christ. That remains the message. It's true for us in Christ. It's not affected by this drought or that environmental calamity or this murderous act or that crushing diagnosis or this war or that disastrous political outcome. None of that stuff changes what's actually going on. God is saving his people. None of that implies that God's purposes are being thwarted or derailed. And God, by his power, when he's ready to do so, will step right in and turn things on their heads the minute it becomes necessary for him to do that in order for his promise to stand. None of that stuff going on means that you are out of God's favor or less uh, in line to inherit his blessings. None of that means that God is not still for us in Christ. So you know, I want to call on you not to make yourself the prey of, on the one hand, a phony health and wealth gospel that leads you to expect things that God hasn't promised in the here and now. And don't be equally, don't be subject to a, a phony gospel of fatalistic despair as though God could never change circumstances now that they're as messed up as they appear to be. Don't be a fatalist who only expects bad things or a spoiled child who only expects good things. But expect God to overcome all things in his own way and time and deliver his promise when it's all said and done. And second, I would say, a little more pointedly, you should trust that God is determined to save by reversing fortunes. I want you not to doubt simply that God is able to turn things around, but that that's what he does. How he brings about the blessing of his people. I don't want you to engage in pessimism toward God. I want you to remember Jesus. Turning things on their heads is how God rolls. Jesus wins by losing. He brings life by dying. He brings blessing by being cursed. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth. The surprising answer is yes. Apparently the best thing ever can come right out of Nazareth. So, for example, it may seem to you that God could never change, let's just get personal, never change you in regard to that vexing, that besetting sin tendency that you have. You've wrestled with it, you've prayed about it, and you pretty much feel like God's not able to fix you. But I'm saying to you, 
In the gospel in Christ, God is not only able to fix you, he has actually promised to fix you as a believer in Christ. He hasn't promised you perfection in this life, but he has promised you final perfection and progress in that direction. So giving up on your sin struggle and despair is not warranted. It's, it is your destiny to be without sin one day, and it's your path to move that way now. And God has committed himself to do that for you. I don't know what kind of risk it might require for you to get in line with God's work and work with his work, but I know from his word that his will is your sanctification. So your efforts are not doomed. They're assured. The power that intervened in the Medo-Persian Empire to put down Haman and raise up Mordecai is the same power that's at work in you through faith in Christ and will intervene for you to put down sin and build up holiness. And, and the same thing is true for the people that you're pleading with God to save. Not that he has promised you particular persons. I'm not suggesting that. But I'm suggesting to you that nobody's situation outside of Christ warrants your despair or giving up on them being saved. You're not warranted to look at somebody's messed up situation and say, this could never change. Uh, the Bible says to us, it sure could. It sure could. When God steps in, it's your will. This is what God does. He's promising that no situation is beyond him stepping in and reversing things and that he will finally reverse everything he has to reverse to keep his promise. So your faith in God's power to save involves the confidence that he can turn back the tide or stop the sun in the sky or raise the dead, whatever he has to do. So I'm calling on you and expect that from God. Pray like you believe that's what God does. Ask God to do what looks impossible because that's where he shines. Christ does the apparently impossible, turning things on their heads and bringing blessing where there was no blessing. And lastly, I would say to let your faith embrace the risk of death to promote life everlasting. Esther risked her own death because she was certain that God had promised life to her people. It was worth it. For us, the promise of life finds its expression in the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. God has promised the success of the gospel. He's given us the image of an earth that's filled with the knowledge of the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. That promised outcome, outcome is worth a life of risk. The risk of death. It's certainly worth the risk of literal death if holding forth Christ causes the powers that be in this world to turn against us and take our lives and our property and our freedom, it's worth it. It's certainly worth the lesser risk of being slandered or lampooned or shunned or ostracized because we hold forth the name of Christ as the one and only solution of what's wrong in this world. So will you risk death in order to promote life? The young woman, Esther, is a model for us in this matter. Her attitude was, I have come to my position for this purpose, for such a time as this, and if I perish, I perish. That's not a death wish. That's an assurance of life. Esther had a mindset that said, this is what I'm here for. This is what it might cost. 
deliverance is from the Lord, but you need to wrestle with the fact that deliverance from the Lord invariably calls for action on the part of the Lord's people who receive it, who seek to see his redemption fully displayed. So I call on you and ask you, is it not good news that we are the recipients by faith of the greatest reversal of fortunes the world has ever known? God has shown us his power and his resolve by sacrificing Christ on the cross and raising him from the dead. His power to give us life is beyond measure and his resolve to do it is beyond question. Dear brothers and sisters, I pray God gives us the grace to live boldly in the confidence that his hand will prevail in all our circumstances and finally bring us to glory. Let us pray. Father, thank you for so great an assurance, for a promise that stands. Thank you for the display of your inimitable power to intervene in human affairs and cause to happen exactly what you desire. And that, in a surprising, reversing ways. Thank you for showing us that in Christ. Give us grace to line ourselves up with what you're doing. For Jesus' sake, amen.